Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Once again, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you're new, I just want to extend an extra special welcome to you today. We're so grateful you're here. If you're joining us over in the chapel or online, a special welcome to you as well. Well, with all that's going on in our world and especially in our nation, um, it is good to gather together and to remind ourselves that we are the people of God. Amen? As you know, our Supreme Court made an important decision on Friday, reversing the Roe v. Wade decision. And um, as a Jesus follower, um, my heart was, was glad, certainly. And as somebody who does care about life, um, both uh, pre-born and already born, the challenge is now on the table for us, is it not? To say, we will do our best as the church to care for people, pre-born and those all throughout their life. We're reminded, I think, on days like Friday, that we are part of a subversive kingdom. We pledge our allegiance to the king who has come to give us life and to give us life to the full, which means life in every way possible. Amen? Amen. So, um, praise God. Praise God. We're in um, the midst of a long study here at Emmanuel Faith. It'll be roughly a year-long study in the New Testament letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It was a letter written by a man named Paul in roughly 54, 55 AD. And it was written to a church that in some ways had lost its way. Uh, A church that was struggling to live faithful to the calling that was before it. A a church that was planted in this culture of contempt and charged with living in orthodoxy and devotion to Jesus. And so the letter of 1 Corinthians, I think, has a lot to say to us today because in many ways we find ourselves in a similar situation. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he gives them instructions on how to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Or another way to say that is how to, how to become a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a culture that wants to pull them away from that at every single turn. And we're going to jump back into that letter today. It was the Spanish philosopher George Santana who's credited with the now famous saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to what? Repeat it. You've heard this before? Uh, Mark Twain followed up with this quote, and he added maybe a little bit more clarity. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I think Twain was right that while we don't see the exact same thing happening over and over, we certainly see patterns as we look throughout the course of history, do we not? In the 1920s, we saw the Great Depression. And then in 2007, we saw an economic recession that followed many of the same patterns that that Great Depression followed. Uh, We saw Napoleon go and try to attack Russia and get caught in Russia in the winter. And then years, decades later, we saw Hitler try to do the same thing. Um, We saw, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1800s, there was a ship from China that was said to be unsinkable. It was called the Texing that was sent out of into the South China Sea carrying a thousand plus people. Does this sound familiar? 
And then uh, about a century later, we saw the Titanic. And by the way, that text thing sunk, um, which is important to the storyline. Because then roughly a century later, we saw the Titanic do the same thing, made the same mistakes, uh, didn't have enough lifeboats for all the people on board. And I think in some ways we see the same types of things going on in our day and our time today. We see history repeating itself. I don't know if you've noticed, but mom jeans are back in style. (laughs) Um, My boys are wearing Crocs. And that was a plot twist that I just didn't see coming. And history, it does. It, 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 It rhymes, doesn't it? History's full of warnings. And I don't know that we've been all that good at heeding them, which is precisely what Paul wants to write to the Corinthian church and challenge them to do. So if you have your Bible, would you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? By way of reminder, last week Paul made the point that carrying influence is a heavy weight to bear. Remember, he said that he he tries to be all things to all people, that he might win some, that he might lead people in Corinth and around the world to Christ. But that's a heavy weight to bear. And in order to bear that weight of influence well, we have to have a character that matches up with our Influence, And so last week we said that for influence to increase healthily, character must deepen consistently. And if you didn't hear last week's message, I'd encourage you, go back and listen to it. Because today, Paul's really going to continue that same line of thought. And he's going to answer that question, well, what does that really look like? And how can that become a reality in our lives? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Are you there? Wonderful. I heard you in the chapel as well. So let's roll. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul wrote this. For I do not want you to be, what? Unaware, brothers. See, see one of the things Paul's going to do in this section is he's going to call the Corinthian church to awareness. And we're going to see that that awareness is an awareness of the four, their forefathers, their spiritual forefathers that have gone before them. He wants them to learn from their journey. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And when Paul uses this word baptized in this context, he's using it as an analogy, as a a type of sorts. That they're associating with that person. The the Israelites did that. They followed Moses as their leader, verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so what Paul begins this section doing is looking back. He's looking back at at Israel's history. He's taking a walk down memory lane, as it were. And he points to the way that God faithfully guided the Israelite people. Remember, a cloud by day and, and fire by night. He points to the way that, it, that God gave Israel spiritual food and literal food throughout their desert wanderings. Remember, it was called manna. He points to the way that he gave them water in the desert. And then he adds this line in that that rock followed them. <laughs> Anybody wonder what, the world, what in the world he's talking about there? There's this old rabbinic tradition 
that said that that rock that Moses struck and water started flowing out of it sort of followed them throughout their desert wanderings as an Israelite nation. It was their way of saying God didn't just do that one time. He was faithful to do it time and time again. And so Paul is trying to draw some parallels for the Corinthian church. He's trying to help them see that their situation in Corinth in 54, 55 AD is not all that different from the Israelites and their wanderings throughout history. His point is God had been faithful to them and he's being faithful to you. That's his challenge. And then listen as he introduces this major contrast that that serves as this sort of disorienting, didn't see that coming type of a statement. He says this, after recounting God's faithfulness and the way that, that Christ had led them and provided for them, he says this, let's read it together, church. Nevertheless, wasn't what you expected, right? Nevertheless, God was faithful. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's a quote from Numbers chapter 14, verse six. And I would argue that this is a devastating nevertheless. What God intended through his provision to evoke in his people did not do what he intended it to do. God did everything he could to position the Israelites for faithfulness, but they chose disobedience time and time again. And you might be asking, okay, well, Paul, why are you, why are you telling these stories? Why, why are you inviting them to beware of, of these stories? And what do you want them and us to do in light of that? I'm so glad you asked that. Let's keep reading verse six. Now, these things took place as what? examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, beware, wake up. You're in danger of going down the exact same road that the Israelites went down. God has been good to you. God has been faithful to you. You've seen his miraculous provision. You've seen his hand move. But all of that is positioning you to faithfully respond to him, not just to sit on your hands and do your own thing. That's his point. That's his point. It's a cautionary tale for us that we should read, a lesson from history that we should take in, recognizing that God's provision positions us for faithfulness. But we must choose obedience. I mean, every single one of these stories tells us that God is faithful to do his part. And the question remains, will we be obedient to do ours? We must choose to follow him. And from here, Paul enters into what we might, turn, what we might term a um, rabbinic midrash style of teaching. He's going to rapid fire, tell stories from the Old Testament that's going to illustrate ways that Israel, the Israelites fell short of what God was calling them to. I'd argue that these four stories are four core human temptations that we all struggle with in one way or another. 
Remember, he doesn't want us to be unaware. Or you might say it like this, a walk down memory lane can save you from a lifetime of pain. That we might be able to learn from their stories instead of having to walk the road ourselves. Maybe G.I. Joe was right, knowing is half the battle. And here's the first temptation that we must be aware of. Verse 7, Paul wrote this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, Paul's citing subtly, but he's citing a story from Exodus chapter 32. You can go back and read it this week. I'd encourage you to do so. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments from Yahweh. The people of Israel are down below in the valley. Moses has been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people of Israel go, grow impatient. They take up a collection of gold. They fashioned it into a little calf, and they are bowing down to worship the calf. My favorite part of the story is that when Moses comes and asks Aaron, how in the world did this happen? He says, we just threw the gold into the fire and then boom, out, passed, uh, out popped this calf. And Moses is like, right, right. But what Paul's doing is he's drawing out this core human temptation, this draw that we call idolatry. And it may not repeat itself in the exact same way always of building some sort of idol and literally bowing down to it. But I think what Paul is saying is that every single one of us in some way, shape or form is in danger of giving the allegiance and affection of our heart to something that is not worthy of it. And he wants us to pause. And he wants us to look at this story and he wants us to ask the question, how might I be in danger of walking down the same path? It was John Calvin who once wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And by that he meant that we have a propensity and even a creative propensity to create idols. Uh, apart from the regenerating work from the spirit, it is what we are bound to do. Because there is nobody in this room, nobody watching online, nobody you've ever met that has an empty throne on their heart. That throne is occupied by something. Because worship is not a religious thing, worship is a human thing. Every single person worships. The question is, what do you worship? Who do you worship? And is what you're giving your worship to worthy of your life? That's the question. And so Paul wants to press on the Corinthian people. He wants them to ask questions about the attachments that they've created and the allegiances that they have formed. As Tim Keller said, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. It seems to me that some of our cultural idols in our day and time are sexuality, our success, our self, and you could name probably a dozen others, but there are ways that we fill our lives and we give our affection to things that just simply don't deserve it. And Paul wants to write to the church in Corinth and go, is, are there any ways you've done that? Any ways you've done that? That's just the first temptation he draws out. Second, he says this, we must not indulge in what? 
sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, once again, this is Midrash. Paul isn't um, stating what story he's drawing this from, but I think he's probably talking about Numbers 25, where a bunch of Israelite men were enticed by Moabite women, and they went and they um, ate food sacrificed to idols, and they were, gave in to sexual temptation. And then God sent a plague to the Israelite camp that killed roughly 20,000 plus Hebrews in one day. That's a devastating event, is it not? Right. I mean, it should cause us to pause for a moment. This is one of those, at least for me, this is one of those Old Testament stories that I just struggle with a little bit. How about you? I read it and I go, God, do you, do you still do that same kind of thing today? And if so, what are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to process that in light of the fact that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? That you look ultimately like Jesus. I think the way that Paul wants these Corinthians to read the story is to read it where they understand, not necessarily that God will do the exact same thing to them today, but to recognize that sexual immorality is a besetting sin that has the ability to destroy. And we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen. It's the second of the core temptations that Paul wants to address. And like I said, this probably isn't one that's hard for us to relate to. The Israelites got carried away by a foreign culture and foreign gods. I don't know about you, but, but I sense the pole living in our cultural moment away from what I might call sexual fidelity. I mean, we've seen the almost ubiquitous nature of pornography in our culture. We've seen over the last few years the rise of polyamory. We've seen the blurry lines of sexual identity. We've seen the frequent nature of adultery. And I think all of it points us back to this passage and this story to just simply ask the question, is there any way that we are in danger of history repeating itself? It's intended to ask, cause us to ask some questions, some hard questions that we may resist if we weren't being pressed on. Third temptation. Listen to what he says, verse nine. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by what? By serpents. And so Paul is alluding to the story in Numbers chapter 21 that you can read. In that story, God gave Israelite, the Israelites victory over the Canaanites, but almost immediately the people grew impatient with God. They started to say things like, did you bring us out of Egypt in order to kill us in the desert? But was that your goal in all of this? And then there were snakes that came and started to bite people and the people started to die. And Paul summarizes all of this by saying, here's the core temptation. The core temptation is testing God. That's the core temptation. That after they'd seen the hand of God move mightily in their midst, but God wasn't moving on their timeline, they got impatient and started to say back to God, What have you done for me lately? Why aren't you moving in the way that I want you to move? And so, um, 
I started to wrestle with this this week. And I started to ask myself the question, what if every time I'm impatient, it actually reveals that I'm not trusting God? What if that's what's underneath all of this? See, because the, the opposite of testing God is trusting God. It's saying back to God, your will be done, not get my will done. Right? And so I think for all of us, there's questions that we can ask ourselves. Is there any way that we are being drawn to the same temptation to test God instead of to trust God, to treat God like a cosmic vending machine? We put the right change in and then he spits out what we've ordered. Are there any ways you're doing that in your life? Paul wants you to beware. He wants you to beware. Because when we start to test God, it never goes well for us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Finally, he says, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I, I hope you're starting to realize that we could give an entire sermon on each of these verses. I hope you're asking questions like, What in the world does it mean to be destroyed by the destroyer? And who is that? And what did that look like? And what did that mean? We could go really, really deep. And we could probably get lost in the weeds there. But here's the point that Paul wants us to hear and what he wants us to see. He's referring to a story, I think, in Numbers chapter 11, when the Israelites were being provided every single day with manna from heaven. And they looked back at God and said, manna again? The Cliff Notes version of that is they were complaining about a miracle. Take that in. Every day, food shows up. And they're saying to God, hey, could we like start to address the food pyramid just a little bit? Specifically the meat section. If we could get a little quail, that would be awesome. And God says, you want quail? You'll have so much quail that it will be coming out of, quote, your nostrils. That's Numbers chapter 11. If you haven't read it lately, I'd encourage you to do so. And here's what we're called to be aware of. Complaining. Complaining. I don't know about you, but we started off, and these were the two, uh, idolatry and sexual immorality, and we went, yep, those are core human temptations. But then we started to get into some of what we might call lesser sins. Testing God and complaining, are those on the same level of idolatry? And what Paul wants us to recognize is that there are things that we can do, even as God is being faithful to provide, that can wage war on our own souls. And complaining is one of those things. Because when you complain, at least four things happen. Number one, you are unable to notice God's blessings in your life. You're blinded. Second, you are unable to give gratitude back to God for what he's given. Third, If you're complaining about a problem, you are implicit within that complaining, unable to be part of the solution. You can either complain about something or you can be part of the solution, but you can't do both. And then finally, complaining has this way of just spreading throughout the camp, does it not? You spread that venom to everyone around you. I think it's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The NIV says grumbling or complaining. 
And I don't know about you, but don't we want to just raise our hand and go, all things? Like, Paul, some things are worth complaining about. And he goes, listen, you can complain about those if you want, but the reality is if you complain about those things, you will not be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in a crooked and depraved generation among whom you shine like stars in the universe. You can complain or you can shine, but you can't do both. So he says, do all things without complaining. So we have these four core human temptations that Paul in a, in a Midrash style draws out for us from Old Testament stories of Israelites' history or quote, their fathers. And why does he do this? He hits this reason again as to why he's laying all of this in front of them. He says, now these things happened to them as a what? As an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It seems as though that Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are living in a parallel type of um, journey arc as the Israelite community. But you're living at a really, really important time in history. You are living at, quote, the end of the ages, which is to say you are living in the aftermath of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So the way that you live really, really matters. We live at the end of the ages too, in case you're wondering. And he wants them to wake up to the temptations that wage against their soul, that have the ability to rip the abundant life from their hands. See, he writes this as an example for our instruction. As if to say, you can either learn from history so that you don't repeat it, or you can repeat the mistakes of history yourself and learn the very painful lessons that they learned. I think we're supposed to read these stories and let them serve as like a blinking light on our dashboard. As a siren, a tornado siren to say, there's danger that's in the area a way to wake us up from what often turns into a spiritual slumber where we get T-boned and taken out without us even knowing it. And I think that we can relate to these core four temptations. I struggled throughout this whole week trying to wrap my mind around, okay, well, God, these are a bit extreme. Can we all agree on that? Like these stories are extreme Stories. People are disobedient and then they die. And I'm going, Lord, what do you want us to get from this? Do, do you want us to live with that kind of, of fear? And, and the sense that I got is there's three things that I think we're supposed to get from this. And I just want to give these to you really sort of rapid fire. Number one, I think we are supposed to be reminded that God is more holy than we could possibly imagine. Completely other. Second, I think we are supposed to be reminded that sin is serious. It's serious. It destroys. It's one of the unifying factors in all four of those stories. And then finally, I think the overarching um, 
thrust for us is that we would take obedience seriously. Not because we're afraid that God will kill us, but we are afraid that we will lose the life that he, the good life, the beautiful life, the abundant life that he has purchased for us on the cross. See, because just because his provision positions us for faithfulness, we must choose obedience. Every story Paul cites reminds us of the same thing. And my hope is that you're going, okay, well, Paulson, what? What does that look like in real life? How can we be people who resist those temptations? It's exactly what Paul starts to address next. Verse 12. Listen to what he wrote. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This word, therefore, applies this, the, the, all that the nation of Israel had walked through throughout their history and the four stories that Paul highlights to the Corinthians in their day and their time. And here's what it seems as though Paul's saying. Paul's saying to this church, don't get so overconfident in the blessing of God that you fail to walk in obedience. But he's also saying to them, don't get so concerned about falling into temptation that you think you're bound to do so. He wants them to engage this tension, to, to be careful, but also to remain confident. To be careful, but to remain confident. This is a tension that we are intended to manage, not resolve. Paul doesn't want any of us to beat our chest going, I'm not going to fall to temptation. No way it could happen to me. I mean, come on, have you ever read one of those stories about a celebrity that just has this massive failure and it's all over the internet and all over your social media and there's this little thought in the back of your mind, you go, could never happen to me. And Paul goes, I, I wouldn't think that. Don't, don't go there. And I, let me tease this out in three different ways. First, he's claiming that overconfidence doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help anyone. I saw this clip a little while back of a race that happens at the Atlanta Braves field. I think it's at the seventh inning stretch where they pick a fan to run as fast as they can. And then this guy, Flash, chases them. Very rarely does anybody beat Flash, but this guy thinks he's going to do it. And watch what he starts to do as he thinks victory is in sight. Come on, bring it on. And then, oh, oh, Flash took him down, right? Fell on his face. This is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 in video form. Pride cometh before the fall, right? And I think the same can be true for us. Where we, if we are saying about anything, I'd never go there. I think Paul wants us to be careful. Second, here, here's, listen to what he said. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Second, I think we need to realize that temptation is just simply a part of our human story. And what Paul's not saying is that your family of origin doesn't matter, 
He's not saying your DNA doesn't matter. He's not saying your environment has zero implications for the way that you follow after Jesus. No, he's just simply saying that every single person who walks this face of this planet is tempted in some way. And so we can't go, well, God, you don't know what I'm walking through. He's simply saying, Every single person struggles, and being tempted is not an excuse to giving in to sin. Third, I think what he wants us to catch is that while we shouldn't be overconfident, we also shouldn't be unconfident. We shouldn't assume that we're going to get beaten down by the same sin time and time again. And his reason for that is because God is what? Did you see it in the passage? God is what? God is faithful. God is faithful. It's his strength that works in us to work and to will according to his good pleasure. He's not going to hang you out to dry. However, remaining faithful might not look like what we always think it looks like. Look at, listen to the way that Paul continues. Verse 13, he says, with the temptation, he will also provide a way of what? Escape. That you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, my guess is you've heard some version of this verse somewhere along the way, and it sounded a little bit like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. Anybody ever heard that? God won't give you more than you can handle. But that's not exactly what this verse says. I would argue that Paul is not saying that God will lessen the level of temptation. He's claiming that he will increase your strength to resist. And so to say God won't give you more than you can handle actually flips it a little bit so we, our perspective is a bit warped. Instead of saying back to God, God, why won't you take this temptation away? This passage calls us to say, God, help me see the strength that you have put within me to resist. And how can I keep walking faithfully? And unfortunately, there are so many that misrepresent this verse and make it seem like God's saying, I'm not going to let bad things happen in your life. Which if, that's, if, you, if you have that perspective, you are doomed to fall when bad things start happening in your life. And if that's what Paul's saying, could he also have written that he experienced so much hardship in Asia and he was under such great pressure that it was far beyond his ability to endure it that he despaired of life, even life itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And I think he makes it even more clear when he says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Come on. We are perplexed not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This is this combination he's identifying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of endurance that happens through escape, through escape. Because escape is often the way of endurance. The way of escape might look like removing yourself from a situation, 
It might look like calling a friend and telling them honestly what's going on, inviting them to walk with you. It might look like going to counseling or it might look like going to AA or it might look like going to, you fill in the blank. But what it does not look like, what escape through endurance or endurance through escape does not look like is remaining in the same patterns and expecting different results. It doesn't look like that. So what if right now you assumed, because the scriptures say so, that God would give you a way out, that God is giving you a way out. And sometimes it looks like literally running. And other times it looks like calling people alongside of you to say, will you hold up my arms? But my guess is if you assume within the things that you're struggling with that God was giving you a way out, that your eyes would be open to what that way is. And here's the last thing Paul says starting in verse 18. And it seems a bit disconnected from his argument at first, but allow me to unpack what's going on. And then I think we'll see how it all connects. He says this, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, which can we just pause there and talk about how brilliant and funny that is? That he's saying, listen, if you're sensible, you're gonna get this. If you're not, good luck. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? What's he talking about? Communion. The bread we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Remember, all of this is in the context of Paul wanting the Corinthians to be more aware. And here he is walking them through the spiritual realities that take place behind their rituals. And he's drawing parallels between the way that Israel sacrificed and the way that the Christians celebrate the communion table. And all throughout, he uses this word, participate, participate, participate five times in this passage alone. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. It's where we get our English word fellowship, but it means quite literally that people are so close that they start to share not just their things in common, but their life in common as well. Communion is usually described as proclamation and remembrance. And indeed, that's what Paul says it is in chapter 11, verse 26. It is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. But here, Paul is saying, there's something more than just proclaiming and remembering that's going on at the communion table. There is participation. There's koinonia. There's a spiritual reality that's taking place under this religious ordinance that the church has been practicing for over 2,000 years. That when we celebrate that table, the communion table, we participate in a very real way with our King and our Lord and our Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And so he wants, Paul wants the church to know that participation can create a union, a union. But then he makes a correlating statement about the 
meals that the pagans celebrated. As you're writing that down, I'll, I'll click to the next slide in just a moment, but listen to what he said starting in verse 19. He said, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's already said an idol is really nothing. And he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, he says. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, pagan rituals would have been well-known by the church in Corinth. They were ubiquitous in their culture at the time. And while Paul says an idol is nothing, he says, don't make the same assumption about the pagan celebrations and festivals. Those are potentially something. And in the same way that Jesus, the real Jesus, the living Christ, meets you around the communion table, through the elements, that he, he visits you in a unique way, the same thing can happen if you go and you participate in these demonic festivals and celebrations. So he's saying, be careful. You could unwittingly and unknowingly unite yourself with a demon, he says. How many of you are going, Wow. That's, I mean, Paul's making quite the statement. Is he not? I mean, we might be able to relate just a little bit. I love going over to Chandara, or the Thai place, um, right next to the church here for lunch. And oftentimes they will have an idol out front with a little bit of food in front of it. And you might judge me for going there, but listen. I'm not participating in the ceremony. I'm just eating the food that was sacrificed to the idols, which Paul says is just fine. <laughs> you see that the distinction would be, hey, come in and worship with us. Come in and pray with us. Come in and participate with us. And Paul goes, be careful. Be careful. You might participate with a demon, but you can go and eat lunch. That's just fine, okay? <laughs> I don't want to make light of this, though. So, so lean in um, for just a few more moments. Because here's what Paul's saying. If you open yourself up to the demonic in that kind of way, that you might unwittingly unite yourself to the demonic. And that can happen through occult activity. That can happen through sexual sin. That can happen through things like drug abuse or even abuse that you suffer or even generational sin that you are under. And so I just want you to hear that if you feel like you are under demonic oppression in some way, that it can be broken. That power can be broken, but it must be done intentionally and it must be done through prayer. And so I just want to encourage you, if you feel like that's the place that you are in, that Paul's writing about something that you have, quote, participated in, I want to encourage you to reach out so that we can pray for you, that freedom's possible. Verse 22, and we'll land here. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? It's a rhetorical, but let's just answer no. Are we stronger than he? No. So he's saying that Corinthians are, in a sense, insulting God. I love the way 
that Charles Spurgeon put it when he said this, communion with the unholy is a challenge to Christ and open defiance to his kingship. So here's the thing, you guys. God wants all of you, body, soul, mind, and spirit. The scriptures say that he is a jealous God. And before you start thinking that God is petty or that God is obsessive or start imposing on him all the things we think when somebody is jealous, here's the deal. You don't want a spouse that wants anything less than all of you. And I would argue you don't want a God that wants anything less than all of you either. You want a God who says, I am so passionate for you. I'm so affectionate for you. I am so for you that I'm unwilling to share you with all the other lowercase g gods that are vying for your attention and vying for your affection. And God's desire for obedience flows from his jealous affection. He wants us to live in his way with his heart so that we can experience his joy and give him the glory that he is due. And by the way, as we close our time, how amazing and unthinkable is it that the King of Kings the Lord of Lords, the creator of it all would be jealous over small people like us. That should shock us into saying, Lord, how can we give you not just part of our lives, but our whole life? Let's pray. So Lord, Father, Son, Spirit, Would you search us and know us? If there's any way that we are off track, any way that we're being pulled through idolatry or sexual immorality and testing you or complaining, convict us, Lord. We want to read these stories in a way that instructs our heart. So convict us. And then, Lord, help us to walk confidently with you, the God who is faithful. Help us to run when we need to run. And help us be careful about what we unite our hearts to. Spirit, I pray, would you move, would you reveal how you want us to apply this passage to our lives today in 2022, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.